Hear the word of God from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old commandment is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing in you a new commandment. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know what they're doing because the darkness has blinded them. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anybody loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint Church. Good morning. My name is Eric Weiner. I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint. Uh, our lead pastor, pa- uh, Pastor Lawrence Yu, has, has been on sabbatical. He's still on sabbatical. I've heard that he's, he's doing well. Um, and there was a, at one point in his sabbatical that he, he was supposed to go and go like three days in the mountains. And if you know Pastor Lawrence, you know that that doesn't sound like him. And uh, I'm reporting back that he, he did struggle to do that, but apparently he did do that. So uh, well done, Lawrence. We, we, good job. You know, all by yourself. For a few days, I know that's that's not that's not you. So, um, but we pray that the Lord uses that. We continue to pray. He's um, we're we're so grateful for Lawrence to, to be able to be on sabbatical. We're praying that uh, the Lord continues to, to use this time just to speak to him to uh, to give vision that, to come back. We're we're excited for that. He's going to be coming back in a few weeks. Um, th- this week, this morning, we're we're in the second week of our letter uh, of our series, our sermon series on the first letter of John. And if you remember from last week, we we said at the outset that John's letter is an, is addressing an important question for anyone who professes faith in Jesus: How can I know that I have fellowship with God? 
How can I know that I have fellowship with God? This is not a question we find out on the peripheries of Christian faith. It's front and center for us. We Christians, we we don't merely affirm some set of ancient confessions that we, we do, but we are also learning to embrace a new way of life. Our shared faith in the crucified and risen Jesus is not only to to rescue us from our guilt and shame, but also to lift us up into the loving arms of God in the new heavens and the new earth. John writes in Revelation 21.3, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. That's our destiny. You see, fellowship with God is at the core of the Christian story, an essential application of the Christian gospel. We see this relationship between God and humanity unfold throughout the biblical narrative. Fellowship enjoyed. Fellowship lost. Fellowship promised. Fellowship redeemed. Fellowship restored. Fellowship forever. But this fellowship that, that we're talking about, this fellowship that, that John is referring to in Revelation, is this, this sounds like something that's only in the future. Is this, is this only in the future? What about now? Can we have fellowship with God now? There are others who, who I thought believed, but they walked away. What do I do with that? How do I explain that? Is my salvation for, for now Or is this something that I I can only hope for in the future? It's still up in the air. How do I know that God will sustain me? Us, you. When John wrote this letter to the churches in Ephesus, he was dealing directly with these kinds of questions, which to me, honestly, is is comforting because it means that, that the questions aren't new. We've been asking these questions for a long time. What can't be lost on us is that John is writing to a community questioning the assurance of their salvation, not because they stopped believing in the gospel. They didn't forsake the truth about Jesus. They didn't reject his forgiveness for sins. They they didn't walk away from the community of faith. What rattled them is that others did. And just to make it more relatable for us, it's, it's important that we keep in mind that these disputes were not with unknown people sitting behind the comforts of a computer screen. These were people they regarded as brothers and sisters in Christ. These were friends they broke bread with, people they'd sit with and sing songs behind their gatherings, brothers and sisters who would pray together. This is painful. This was painful for them. They, They watched people leave the doors. They walked out. And it's a reminder to us that our fellowship with one another actually matters. The more I think about discipleship in the life of our church, the the more I realize that we we are inviting people into a way of life. I mean, the various ministries and programs that we have are, are not cogs in some machine of some formalized Christian institution. They're an invitation for fellow believers to embrace a way of life that is calling each of us to love God and to love others both inside and outside of the church. A way of life that cultivates a desire to put on Christ in all of life. 
So for those who ask, how can I know that I have fellowship with God? John is bringing to our attention something fundamental to that fellowship that is both theologically sound and biblically wise. To have fellowship with anything requires more than proximity. It requires more than relational fondness. It it requires even more than propositional agreement. You can live near be relationally close to and agree with lots of people on really important things and still fall out of fellowship with them. You know this. You've experienced this. For example, consider big life decisions like where you work or if, if the Lord leads you, if, if you get married, who you marry. And a quick Google search will tell you that on average a person works for the same employer for about 4.6 years. A recent U.S. Census Bureau says that on average, marriages in the United States right now last for about eight years. So maybe we should add to our list of questions, is long-lasting fellowship even possible for us? Can we even do that? To have eternal fellowship requires a kind of yoking together, something that is more objective, more stable, and more deeply rooted than even the surest of human commitments. You need oneness of heart and mind, oneness of heart and mind, something made possible by the saving work of God in Christ through the new covenant. This is what Jeremiah 31, 33, and 4 says that Jesus has secured for us. This is the covenant I will make with them, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor Or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive the wickedness, their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. We see these ideas pop up again here in in 1 John. We know the Lord. His law is written on our hearts and on our minds. We know him. In our passage this morning, I have three categories that, that I want us to consider. Three, three observations that I see in this passage. That, that it is, it, John's just, he's hitting different ideas. He's just bouncing into different ideas. And, and so the first is, is we see the weight of God's commands. The second is that we see the warmth of Christian encouragement. And the third is that we, we see the warning of worldly conduct. The weight of God's commands, the warmth of Christian encouragement, the, the warning of worldly conduct. And all relate to embracing this new way of life that we find in Christ Jesus. So first, the the weight of God's commands, the weight of God's commands is that we love one another. Those who have fellowship with God are learning how to live under the weight of God's commands. And the essence of his commands is that we love one another. If you want to prove that you have a growing relationship with God, then you'll obey God's commands. That's what John is saying. That's, that's a test for us. You want to you know that you have fellowship with him, a relationship with him, you'll, you'll obey his commands. Put another way, one clear sign that you are in the family of God is that you act like his son. Now, some of us will read these words and think, okay, give me the command. I'll do it. Others of us read it and think, let, let me get this straight. You're saying that all I have to do to be assured of my salvation is to live exactly like Jesus lived. How close do I have to get? 
But John wouldn't intend for either of these responses. His, his, the, the initial audience would have been encouraged by what John is saying. So, so let's wrestle with our own baggage here and, and, and try to see if we can't land where they did. If keeping God's commands is the standard for Christian fellowship, then knowing God sounds like trying to win the lottery. The reward is significant, and anyone can play. Anyone can play. But the odds of actually winning seem nearly impossible. If knowing God is like that, then we're all just playing the odds of religion. Our works are like buying tickets that never win. We keep throwing our lives at working toward a dream that we will never realize, wasting away at what seems like an unwinnable game. If these are God's terms, then we will all be crushed under the weight of God's perfect law. But when John says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands, he's not placing prerequisites on us. He's saying that keeping God's commands is characteristic of those who truly know God. In reality, we're sitting on a winning ticket. It's already been announced. We just have to turn it in. This is how we know we are in him. 1 John 2, 5 and 6 says, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And we learn to live like Jesus did by abiding in him, by being yoked to him. In Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 and 30, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Who have been some of the most influential people in your Christian walk? Who are some of the most influential people in your Christian walk? These are people who have shaped you, that you've learned from, that you've walked under. I have sat in, in many Explore Waypoint meetings where I've heard Pastor Lawrence share his story about Leighton Lane Lockett from Lubbock, Texas, as a significant figure, this significant person who, who was crucial for, for him coming to faith. Well, for me, it was Lyndon Lingle and Logan Thor, so that's my attempt at his, his little thing. But th th these were guys, this is true, I didn't make those names up, those are, those are real people. Th these were guys from my middle school and high school days who, who first made the message of Jesus real to me in both the truth they proclaimed and the life of love that they shared with me. My friend Logan is, is a couple years older than me, and, and when he left for college, people who knew him and interacted with me used to say, you, you kind of remind me of Logan. You sound like him. Seems like you, you, you even think like him sometimes. And I took that as a compliment because I wanted to be like Logan insofar as he resembled Christ to me. He was the best representation of Christ that I had at the time. He was the closest one to me. So I, so I was like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to try to be like him. When you do life with people, you, you begin to resemble them. You consider their way of thinking. You, you might even adopt some of their values. You talk like they talk. You, you think like they think. You give like they give. You live like they live. And when you do, when you do life with Jesus, you begin to resemble him. So when John says in verse 4 that whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person, John is saying that people like that, their words don't match the experience of those who know Jesus. Those who know Jesus are starting to be like him. 
They're starting to resemble him. They, they're living like people who, who don't resemble him. It doesn't seem like they really know him. He's saying that people who obey his commands resemble Jesus because they've, they've been living with him and learning from him. Let me, let me show you further what I mean. In, in Matthew 11, this, about being yoked to him, when Jesus calls for us to learn from him, he calls for us to learn from him, he's not giving us some vague responsibilities. He's providing us with the tools to grow, to embrace his way of life. Now, a yoke was a wooden tool that you'd, you'd fit around the neck or shoulders of an, of an ox or a donkey to, to ease the workload. Farmers would also use a, a, a yoke as a training tool. They'd, they'd yoke a more seasoned animal with a young, inexperienced one to, to help them train. So you'd, so you'd have these two animals yoked together. The, the seasoned animal actually bears the brunt of the load. They set the pace. They set the direction. The, the, the younger, inexperienced animal doesn't have to know which way to go because it's just following, just following along. It's not overburdened by, by this newfound responsibility. It's because the, the, the older, the, the, the more experienced, the more seasoned animal is, is actually carrying the weight of it. He's just along for the ride almost. So by offering his yoke to us, Jesus is not saying, here, let's swap. I'll take your heavy load and you take my light load. He's actually saying, come learn from me. I'll do the heavy lifting. I will set the pace. I'll give you the direction. You just need to walk with me. You'll catch on. You'll learn to match your, your pace of life with my pace of life. Those who live this way know where they're going because they're learning to walk in step with Christ. This is what it means to walk in the light. They're not learning to, they're not, they're learning to not reject their brothers and sisters, but to seek their needs even when it disadvantages them. And they become proof that Jesus' commands are not burdensome, but freeing. Becoming like Jesus is not taking the path of least resistance. It's not adding a little bit of Jesus to, to an otherwise busy week. That doesn't work. You will burn out or you'll walk away. It's not just adding a little bit of Jesus to a busy week. It's, it's learning to sacrifice for the building up of others. It's, it's learning to give more than you take. It's learning to embrace a whole new way of living. A way of living that can actually carry the, the, the burdens of life. And in doing so, it's, it's, we're, we're learning to be in step. We're learning to abide in the one who is the source of life. I, I, I've been feeling convicted on this, by this lately. When, when, when we struggle to love others, this is what Jesus is calling us to, when we, when we struggle to love others, what if our first instinct was not a critical word or a sharp reply but humble submission at the feet of the Father? What if we stop viewing one another as what we are right now and trusted that God was working in each of us, moving us toward what will one day be in glory and that we, his church, are instruments in his hand toward those purposes? What if our first response was to pray to the Lord for the building up of others? Maybe that would safeguard us from assuming the worst. At least we'd be practicing taking God at his word. Verse 8 says that the darkness is passing away, but those who are in the light are not. 
He says the light is shining. We, we gain these rich relationships by abiding in Jesus. So let's put on the light yoke of Jesus' commands and let's love one another as he has loved us. Second, second observation, we see that the warmth of Christian encouragement, the warmth of Christian encouragement, and this, it, when I first read these verses, the, the initial thought that I had is, what do I do with this? I mean, why, why, why is this here? Why, why does John put it here? This, is this reason for writing. He says, I'm writing to you for this and that. I'm writing to you and I'm writing to you. You don't usually give an explanation for writing at a, at a random point in the letter. It usually comes at the beginning of the letter. Or it comes at the end of, of the letter. At least it's, that's pretty much what every other New Testament writer does. And not only does it create kind of an awkward break in the flow of thought, it also is repetitive. It's, it seems redundant. It seems, but it also seems like that's intentional. That's, that's purposeful. That's what John is actually trying to do. Is he's, he's trying to slow the reader down and have them reread these words over and over again until they start to sink in. If you look at verses 12 through 14, he's using language of identity. He's giving them this little poem of sorts as a way of encouraging them about their truest identity, why they can have confidence, why they should be assured. And if you pair that with the fact that if you just quickly skim through this letter, you'll find at least 15 times that John refers to these fellow Christians as dear children, or dear friends. Those little phrases aren't fluff. They're terms of endearment intended to communicate relational closeness from a loving pastor. And John is being emphatic. He's speaking words of life into them. He's saying, live on these words for a moment if you have to, because I want to make sure this is coming across to you loud and clear. John's not writing to them because he's concerned that they don't have fellowship with God. On the contrary, their faith in Jesus proves it. Obviously, there are people who have been deceived, so these questions being raised, these are warranted. But it's the people who left who are out of step. It's the people rejecting Christ's atoning work who are out of step, not the ones asking for clarity and assurance. So he uses this repetitive, rhythmic language to encourage them that while they are right to be guarded, it's not them that he's concerned about. He's actually grateful for them. They should actually have confidence because, as he says, their sins have been forgiven on account of his name and because they know the Father. Do you hear the language of Jeremiah here? He's saying, he's saying, their sins have been forgiven. They know the Father. The new covenant says that they know the Lord because they will all know me. Their forgiveness, there's forgiveness for sins. This is what he's reminding you. You're, the law of Christ has been written on your hearts. There's encouragement here. Take heart, fellow brother and sister. John expounds on this point in verse 14 by saying that their strength comes from abiding in the word of God who lives in them. This is how we overcome. We keep submitting ourselves under the weight of what Jesus is able to carry. There are many trials and snares that, that try to lure us away and destroy us, but Jesus tells us that in him we may have peace. As it says in the Gospel of John, in this world we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So here's my attempt at, at being like John here. Let, let Christian encouragement strengthen you this morning. To all who continue to press on in the face of chronic illness and pain, 
wondering when the day will come that you will find relief. Take heart, for Christ sees your pain. And he is our endurance and strength. He is our healer who is putting an end to all pain. To all you weary mothers and fathers who aren't getting enough sleep or aren't sure if you're even making any progress at all, take heart. Your children are a blessing from the Lord and he is pleased to have you represent his love to your kids. To all you grieving the loss of loved ones, missed opportunities, broken relationships, take heart. For the Lord is our hope and he comforts his people. To all who feel forgotten, overlooked or unseen, take heart. For the Lord sees you, he knows you and he crowns you in glory by the power of his son. To all who feel the weight of life buckling down on you, take heart. For it's not your burden alone to bear. The Lord is your refuge. To all who this week gave in to the deceitful desires of sin, take heart, for there is forgiveness on account of his name. To all who continue to let those secret sins lurk unknown and unchecked in your life, take heart, for Christ your Savior sees you and knows you and has the power to unchain you from such bondage and despair. To all you discouraged by the lack of progress in your evangelism among loved ones and co-workers, friends and peers, take heart. For your prayers do not fall on deaf ears. The Lord honors the faith of friends and Jesus himself is our friend. To all you altar saints among the body, you are immensely valuable. Take heart. For your lives are a gift from the Lord and the wisdom he's given you, a gift to this body to the church and to all the saints of Waypoint Church take heart for Christ has embraced you this is our way of life and we live even this day in light of Christ's victory through him we have overcome the world three we see the warning of worldly conduct the warning of worldly conduct we, we can't make it very far in, in this section as we think about these verses verses 15 through 17 without defining what John means when he says the world, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. But this is odd because, because God loves the world. I mean, earlier in this letter alone, John says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in John's gospel, he writes, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God clearly loves the world. But he tells us, do not love the world. So what does that mean? What do we make of that? What John is saying is, is that there is an aspect of the world that, that cannot be redeemed. An aspect of the world, a kind of conduct that is actually passing away that we should have nothing to do with it. Do not give yourselves over to a world order that opposes God. Do not give yourself over to a life that is in opposition to God. Do not fall under the lordship of Satan's dominion. Such power will not stand. It is wasting away. What John is telling us is that the desires of the world are deceptive and enticing. The world tells you that what you see is what you get. This is all there is, so, so live it up and enjoy it. 
But John is giving us another narrative, one that is actually hard to believe. If we're honest, it's, it's hard to believe. He's, he's saying the world has the appearance of permanence, but the world and its desires are actually passing away. That this is not all there is, that there's more, and it's coming, and it's here, and it's now. And what we think, what we see is leaving, it's going, it's on the way out. We think that the world is this endless cycle of, that, that will go on forever. But it's actually more like Blockbuster. Go, go with me here, okay? In the 90s, nobody thought that Blockbuster was going anywhere. I, I watched this video the other day of, of the rise and fall of, of Blockbuster. And you see a map of, of the United States. That's all this video is. It's just a map of the United States. And, and starting in 1986, you see in the, the bottom left corner of the screen, you see the, the date and you see the, the months and the years just, just going by. And you, as, as, as it goes, you start to see these dots start to populate on this map of the stores, of the, of the stores of, of Blockbuster. And you start to see it and it's slowly. And then it starts picking up. As the years go on, it starts picking up and picking up and picking up. And, and so early 2000, in, in the 90s, rapid, popu rapid population, rapid growth. In, in the early 2000s, thousands of stores. Then around 2006, something happens. All of a sudden, you start to see stores, you start to see these dots start to disappear. And at first, it's slowly disappear. Then the pace starts to pick up. It's steady. And then it's rapid. You just see it. Just, just, they're, they're, just, they're, they're gone. Store closures across the country. And now it's down to one store. And it's, it's pretty much just for nostalgia. I mean, go, go rent a VHS in, in uh, Oregon. Just for, the, just for kicks, just for fun. You're like, what, what's a v, VHS? Who, who uses that now? Ironically, back in 2000, the CEO of Blockbuster met in Dallas with the co-founders of a, of a newer but struggling company. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called um, Netflix. And these guys at Netflix, they were hoping that Blockbuster was going to buy them for, for $50 million. Seems like a fair price. And Blockbuster's good on it. They're, they're wealthy. The, 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 the journalist covering the story writes this about Blockbuster. It says, Blockbuster's Dallas headquarters. At Blockbuster's Dallas headquarters, everything seemed designed to impress visitors with the company's wealth and power. They would flaunt it. Blockbuster was secure in their wealth. And they were also confident the online business model would flop. Well, sorry, Blockbuster. But now we think that, that nothing's ever going to happen to Netflix. They'll never go anywhere. And the cycle continues. We do this. We think this way. It's just permanence, but it's temporary. It's transient. The, the temptations of this world are enticing and attractive. But they also promise more than they can deliver. And they give us greater confidence than they can secure. John says in verse 16 that what characterizes the lifestyle of the world is the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And what he's doing is, he's, he's giving us categories to understand our desire for what we don't have and our pride in the things that we do have. The pride of life could be translated as, as the pride of, of lifestyle. This person who, who has the pride of lifestyle, this person boasts in what they have obtained, whether that's assets or resources, position, power, lifestyle, they need to, have the, to, to, to tangibly, tangibly articulate 
their own self-importance. It's their everything. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes relates to people who, who are enamored by the appearance of things. It's attractive to them. They, they, don't, they don't think deep beneath the surface. They don't actually give proper weight or value to, to what it is, but they want it. People crave what they cannot have. More status, more possessions, more credibility, more pleasure, more fame, more followers. We want our lives to mean something. And we're even willing to give away our future to satisfy our present. We make half-hearted judgments all the time and they mislead us. And this is not a new problem for us. We, we've been dealing with this since the Garden of Eden. But this is exactly why John gives encouragement before warning. He's saying the danger is real, but the life we share in Christ actually has substance to it. It has staying power. Danny Aiken says that when compared with a life lived in the will of God, the things this life has to offer are, are really empty imitations of God's best. The things of the world seem to be of, of great value, but they are worthless when compared to the eternal blessings that come from doing the will of God. Imitations of God's best. Listen, something will direct your attention. Something will win your affections. The question is not if we'll love. It's in which direction that we will devote our love. Will we devote our love to the world and fall deeper into its snare, storing up treasure with where moth and rust destroy? Or will we choose the way of Christ and store up treasures in heaven, embracing the eternal life and infinite Infinite worth God gives us in his son. John says that whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world passes away, but, but those who are in Christ will live forever. And we know that we cannot do the will of the Father except through the Son. But, but Jesus says that we can take up his yoke now and learn from him. He says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So, take heart, dear friends, for we are not left on our own. Jesus is teaching us now how to match our lives with his through his church. And as we walk together, we are learning to love one another as we abide in him. This is how we learn the way of Christ. Let's walk this way together. Let's trust him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you, you do not leave us on our own. God, we're not left to figure out how to, how to walk this way of life by ourselves, by our own merits. But Lord, we, we lean on your understanding. We lean on your strength. God, teach us, teach us in your church how to, how to walk this way, how to walk in the light, how to, how to cling to, to the, what is true, how to make proper valuations of, of what, what our, our desires should, should be running toward. God, that we would, we would hold you up, that we would lift you up. God, as ultimately you are lifting us up. God, we thank you. We thank you for this new life you give us. God, may you strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' strength. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned earlier during our 
prayer time. This morning we join together with our Christian sisters and brothers around the world in participation of the Lord's Supper or Communion. Uh, This is a time when followers of Jesus, this is uh, for those who are followers of Jesus, uh, come together and reflect and remember the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ and the new covenant that we have in him. Earlier in the service, we confessed our sins and accepted his forgiveness. And now I want us to reflect on the new covenant. Eric mentioned the new covenant multiple times. We, we get that in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. God prepares the people for this new covenant that we're going to have in Christ. And in Jesus, we're forgiven people. We're born again. We're new creations. We're people with a hope and a future. People of the kingdom of God. That's who we are. And this meal is a way for us to remember how that was accomplished by what Jesus did on the cross and how his resurrection raises us to new life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I'm sorry, these wafers don't taste very good, but they do reflect the bread. So please, you can peel off the the top layer and take the bread. And remember, this is the body of Christ, which was broken for you. In the same way, After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the blood of Christ that was shed for you. Father, We thank you for the new covenant we have in your blood. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting and the hope we have now and the hope we get to look forward to when you come back in glory and we can live with you and dwell with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth, God. And we trust our bodies and our lives to you. Thank you for your forgiveness and thank you for your grace, God. Help us to walk in your grace and to walk by the power of your spirit until we come again to this table. And we give you all the praise and all the glory and ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.